The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. And you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com. Joining me this morning is Sana Maring. She's the founder of Caring Bridge. In 1997, good friends of mine had a premature baby, says Sonia, and they asked, says Sana, and they asked me to let everyone know what was happening. Instead of making dozens of emotional and time-consuming calls, I decided to create a website. The same night their baby Brigid was born, so was the idea that became Caring Bridge. Since then, more than half a million CaringBridge websites have been created. One in nine people in the United States have used CaringBridge, whose reach extends to 236 countries and territories around the world, to rally support for a loved one during a health journey. In 2011, Sana Maring was named one of the most influential women in technology by Fast Company. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Sana. Thank you, Catherine. Well, this was 1997 we're talking about, so 20 years. So I assume, obviously, a lot has happened uh, in the past 20 years, and you've had access to the Internet in ways that you never had it in 1997. So explain to us exactly what is CaringBridge. Now, your logo, if you go online, we can see your logo is Stronger Together. Uh, What's the mission, and how does it work, and what do you do? CaringBridge.org is a global nonprofit, and it's important to understand it's a nonprofit, and it's a nonprofit social network that's really dedicated to helping family and friends communicate with and support loved ones during a health journey. It's a simple idea of when you're going through a, a health event, a health journey, a health crisis, one of the most important things is to be connected to your friends and family. So what's the, okay, that gives us obviously an overall, a general feel for what you do. Take us through the step, you know, through the process, because I might say, well, what's the difference between that, like connecting through friends uh, on Facebook, for instance? Uh, I mean, that's a a way of of connecting to, yeah. A couple of interesting things is you mentioned CaringBridge has been around now going on 20 years. So it was in 1997, and I always like to invite people to think back to the type of technology that was around in 1997 because it was a little bit ahead of its time and quite pioneering in the idea of connecting people online in the digital world. But I've always believed in technology. In fact, my background is technology. In the 90s, I was doing web page design, which, of course, lended myself to understanding the power of being connected through this online environment that is really available and continues to be available almost anywhere we are. And the big difference with Caring Bridge and now other social networks that have come on the scene over the last 20 years is we've been able to really remain true to our mission of, and our underlying mission is amplifying love, hope, and compassion in the world, making every health journey easier. 
And it's during those health journey times that it's really important to have a safe, protected space. And caringbridge.org, when you go and you create a website, everything is under your control as far as the privacy, the level of, you know, who you want to have uh, invited. But a big difference is we're, we're not putting in invasive ads, we're not manipulating data, and we're not selling data. And CaringBridge is about this one topic. So a lot of times uh, social networking and social media can become very crowded, very diluted, and what CaringBridge provides is a very safe, protected environment that really is about wrapping that patient and that family caregiver around love, hope, and support. I want to get, let's do a case, an example, because I'm a social sure. worker. Let's say I'm diagnosed with breast cancer. Uh, and I, uh, what do I do if I want to access Caring Bridge uh, in terms of what my diagnosis is and connect myself with a, a family or a group or whatever it is who's going to give me support? You go to caringbridge.org and just a few clicks, you can actually create your own website. And as you're going through there, you'll have to answer a few questions. One is around, uh, you know, what level of public or privacy do you want on your CaringBridge website? And as you answer that, you're able then to very easily create a CaringBridge website. That is your website. It is your platform for communication. They right, have a, let's they take the levels. What would the levels be? Some people are actually much more public than um, uh, perhaps I would be, where they they do want to share the story in a very public forum, so you can have it in a very public forum, or you can have it very private, where you're just inviting a handful of friends that you'll have on your Caring Bridge site. Most people, of course, are in the middle, where they invite a larger group of their friends and family, uh, maybe some of their coworkers or things like that. Uh, so it is very similar to a social network where you can, can control who is, um, has access to your CaringBridge site, and that's all very transparent and very under the control of the author. But, you know, your Sonia, situation... What, what your, would you... I just want to ask you this. So let's say, okay, that's a group of people that you would invite to be on your CaringBridge site. Would you invite people who, let's say, who just have the same kind of breast cancer that you have? Maybe you don't even know them. I mean, let's say, but you're just kind of putting it out there and saying, you know, I have stage three breast cancer, uh, and so you're interested in people joining you who have the same thing? Do you do that? No, uh, we don't do that intentionally. That happens quite a bit where people will, will find each other on their journey and they'll, they'll want to share their story between someone else that's going through a similar event. We don't specifically do that. It really is more around your own community support that's needed, but we do find a lot of people will, you know, follow other people's sites that are going through a similar condition. But it really is this idea of, in fact, we work, we do outreach with uh, healthcare partners that, let's say you got that diagnosis, one of the other things that that health provider, that, health, that doctor, that nurse might ask is, how are you going to stay com- connected to your family and friends? How are you going to let them know what's going on? And they will recommend a CaringBridge website for that communication piece. Uh, okay, so that would be step one, or that that's the beginning. That's what you would do initially when you're setting up this website. So then what do we do next? You let people know about that CaringBridge site. Uh, either you're invited as you create the CaringBridge website, or you let them know through emails or through text, through our notification process. 
But, you know, one of the most important things is, is that understanding of what can I, you know, how, how can I keep people up to date? And most people really understand. In fact, when CaringBridge was first created, when my good friends, as you, you mentioned, were going through this very premature birth, and they asked me to let people know what was going on. And I made two phone calls and realized, even for me, how, how much time and how much energy that takes. So people really understand it takes so much time and energy just to let people know what's going on. And Caring Bridge can ease that burden immediately to let people know what that diagnosis is, what the treatment plan is going to be, you know, when will they need additional help. That's another kind of thing I always talk about with CaringBridge is it helps that community of support help. So it helps people help other families going through a health event. All right. That's okay. That's all right. That's what step two or whatever it is. I want you to take us really holding our hand through the whole process so that anyone who is listening and may want to join CaringBridge will know exactly what to do and how to, how to do it. Um, Yep. So you, you, you know, you're, you're sitting in the doctor's office and here's a, a husband and a wife and, uh, the wife gets a, a diagnosis, um, of breast cancer. They know they have to start treatment. One of the first things, and many times who creates the Caring Bridge site is actually kind of that primary caregiver. So in this situation, I could see the husband actually going to CaringBridge.org, quickly creating that Caring Bridge site for his wife, saying, you know, Betty was diagnosed with cancer. Here's the treatment plan. And that journal goes out. He makes sure and puts it out to his friends and family. They get the notification of what's going on. They're immediately brought in, and they can leave messages of support. Uh, that They can also put things like they need to have um, help getting their son to soccer practice, and they can put that request on the CaringBridge site as well. But it really is around just people being understand that there's breast cancer diagnosis, here's what's going on, here's the additional help they need, and then messages of support from that family and friends. A, they know what's going on, and B, they can at minimum leave messages of love and support, know what to think about and pray for, know where it it makes sense to bring over that lasagna on Wednesday, and it really helps kind of control that chaos. And many people have said that CaringBridge really provides them kind of that place that they know they can control uh, their communication and it becomes a support mechanism for them. It becomes therapeutic for that, for example, that husband being able to journal about what's going on with his wife and, and Betty can come in and journal about what's going on with her. So it becomes this hub of just community support that just continues to lift up everyone that's involved in the situation. Yeah, it would seem to me there would be no downside to it. And one of the things, having gone through uh, healthcare problems, is I don't think there's anyone who hasn't uh, in those kinds of situations that you just described. What it does is you don't really have to emotionally connect with each person that, that you know, you don't have the emotion usually in you to be able to, to do that. It enervates you to have to make phone calls all the time or to talk to people and give them information that maybe you as the caregiver or don't even have a relationship with, although the person who is ill does. So it just right. gets rid of, yeah, it gets rid of all that stuff, I would call it, or noise or chaos or whatever it is. And you can use your energy to a lot more positive kinds of things that you need to as the, as the person who is the, you know, is the caregiver. Yeah. And, you know, you, you, you want people, you do want to 
be there for your friends and family. You want to let them know what's going on. And uh, it really, like I said, it, re- it reduces the, and eases the burden of that need to the communicate where it's a very central spot. It's very easy. Your community is getting what they need and empowering them to give, you know, give back and be there for what that family is going through, for that caregiver, for that patient, for what they're going through, and being able to just have a level of understanding that a lot of times there's kind of this dark cloud and, you know, area of just unknown, and it, re- it takes that veil of the unknown off and really helps people connect. Well, um, Sana, do you keep this forever? Because, I mean, once you, let's say, if if it's a crisis and and whatever it is, you know, whatever the diagnosis is and you go through treatment and you're done, are you done with your website or do you just keep the website as sort of an ongoing website for anything else that may happen that you may? Yeah, Caring Bridge really becomes that story. And, you know, every health journey kind of has chapters and different milestones. Most people keep their CaringBridge site for extended periods. In fact, we've, we have a CaringBridge site that now is going on 20 years, and it was from a premature baby who they continue to talk about, you know, the new milestones. And in fact, I, I love to talk about last spring in April, uh, a site that I've been following now for almost 20 years posted their daughter going to prom. And here was this, pre, you know, and it was another milestone in another chapter. So that's, that's what we see happen with Caring Bridge Sites is it becomes kind of that milestone, that chapter. And, it's, it, again, it, it's really centralized on the story of that health journey, that recovery. If it was the end of life, many people come back as, uh, you know, it helps them with their grief. It becomes back as a milestone of anniversary or death or celebration of a milestone or it's a celebration of five years cancer-free or, you know, with a brain injury, maybe it's a new milestone with being able to do something new or, or a new discovery of what's happening. So most Caring Bridge sites last well beyond that, you know, initial diagnosis or that jolt that really turns people's life on a dime. And it becomes something that becomes a central part of what they're able to gather strength from. So it becomes each person's story or each family's story, I guess, right? And 20 years. It really years, does. Yeah. It, and, and I always talk about how each Caring Bridge site is so personal and unique. And it, it truly is. It is their story. And one of the honors I have as being founder, when I talk to people and, and tell them I'm the founder of Caring Bridge, they will tell me their Caring Bridge story. And it, it becomes so impactful to be able to understand the impact that Caring Bridge can have every single day, not only on that patient that's going through the journey, but that family caregiver probably benefits just as much, if not more, than that patient being able to gather strength and support and not feeling isolated. But the whole community that's connected to that family is just able to be there in a much more present way with that journey. Yeah, I would say so, because I think so many people are isolated. You know, we have the, you know, the picture on the wall is everybody's there to help you and your family and your neighbors. And, you know, that's not always true or people that you work with. So uh, this is kind of, I think, really fits into the reality of the way we live today, because we live far away often from family and really far away so that uh, we, we are dependent on uh, the kindness of strangers, if you want to say, but here you have Caring Bridge. What about 
tell us some of the, you're talking about stories and you told us a story about the premature baby, but tell us some other stories. I mean, any stories that sort of came out as unique that you kind of didn't expect in ways, you know, that uh, Caring Bridge would, would help the, the individual or the, the caretaker? Well, there has been moments throughout the last 20 years that just over and over again, I realized the impact of Caring Bridge. One of the very first ones was after baby Bridget uh, and knew how important and powerful that site was, and I became somewhat obsessed with the idea of, wow, Caring Bridge needs to be there for any one going through a health journey, and within just a few weeks, actually launched CaringBridge.org so that anyone could come and create their own website, again, back in 1997. But just six months after that, uh, actually before CaringBridge was actually founded as a nonprofit, I got a $100 check in the mail, and back in the 90s, we would have a lot of personal information on our checks, so this woman actually had her phone number. So I gave her a call, and we are based in the Minnesota area in the Twin Cities, uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul, and this woman lived in California, and I gave her a call, and I said, thank you for your $100. We're not a nonprofit yet. She said, I understand that, but you need to, you need to understand I would have never known my granddaughter without Caring Bridge, and Caring Bridge needs to be there for every grandmother. And that was just one of those lightning bolt moments of understanding how impactful and how deeply beneficial Caring Bridge can be. You fast forward these 20 years, every seven minutes a new Caring Bridge site is created that brings families together. And just to tell one more story, um, just recently I was following a family uh, who actually started a Caring Bridge site 13 years ago when she had uh, twins born. And the twins had some complications in their pregnancy and in their birth. And so right from the birth, both the, the twins needed to have um, a lot of medical procedures and a lot of things going on. And they've been using their Caring Bridge site as that journey's been going. And, and one of the things that have happened is one of the twins, Logan, they knew throughout his short, you know, young life that he would need a heart transplant. So just earlier this year, he had a heart transplant. So it's been amazing watching this journey for 13 years on a Caring Bridge site and watching it, you know, change for what that family needed and having him go through this heart transplant a rejection scare, and now watching him as he, you know, went back to school this fall has been just an amazing journey, not only for that family and those twins, but for the community that supports them. Uh, these are phenomenal stories, and I assume that these are stories that you share with healthcare professionals. You mentioned earlier doctors. Um, I mean, is this something when when you, you bring Caring Bridge to the medical community as well? Uh, is this in terms of may, may not obviously it's available, but making them aware. Are they aware? They are, and we do a lot of outreach with the healthcare community. And you know, I've seen a lot change in healthcare, a lot of attitude change in healthcare over the last twenty years. And I would say in the last five years, the more emphasis on the patient-centered care family-centered care, CaringBridge fits right into that, that the family needs to make sure they're not isolated and needs to be, you know, having this community of support around them helps in the outcomes. Uh, it helps people heal, and we have heard that over and over again of how CaringBridge has been one of the most important things they've had during their health journey, helping not only that patient, but again, that family caregiver. And I think 
people don't understand the role of the family caregiver. Many of us that have been in it certainly understand it, but it is a daunting, overwhelming task. And the caregiver themselves many times feel isolated. Many times they can fall ill. And as the caregiver is so is the patient. And so really thinking holistically about the ability of that patient and that caregiver to not feel isolated, to be able to ask for help, to be able to reach out to the community is really an important aspect that we understand at Caring Bridge because we've seen it for the last 20 years and the healthcare community is really embracing that. And what about social workers? Shouldn't you be uh, in every school of social work or social welfare across the country so that social workers can avail themselves of, 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 of CaringBridge? Absolutely. And, you know, there's probably three or four roles in the hospital that we do focus on. Social work is definitely one of them. I mean, you're talking to the families about, you know, their situations. And uh, social workers, child life specialists, even um, chaplains, those are the people that are really talking to the, the patients and their families kind of in that more holistic way. And we do do a lot of outreach with those, those um, type of professions. And uh, you're the person, you're the founder. I, sh- I just want to ask you this. I mean, could there be any downside to it or has there been any downside or what are some of the difficulties? Maybe I should put it that way in, in uh, you know, providing this service. Well, Karen, you know, the heart of Cambridge remains that idea of communicating during their greatest time of need. And, but we're in the digital space. We're in this technology industry. We're in the healthcare industry and there's, constant change and new things. And I would say that the pace of innovation has been amazing over the last 20 years. And it's just making sure that Caring Bridge is always where people need it. For example, in 1997, some of us were carrying around phones, but they weren't, you know, they weren't in everybody's pocket. So the idea of being able to be on those mobile devices where people are connected is important. Privacy and security of these networks have become more important. So it's just staying ahead of that technology and, and what's happening within healthcare has been probably one of the biggest challenges for CaringBridge. But the basic need of bringing your friends and family together when your, your life has been turned on a dime, when you've gotten that diagnosis, when you've had that car accident, when you know you're going to have surgery, when your baby's delivered weeks prematurely, being able to tell people what's going on and let them be there has always been at the heart of Caring Bridge. What? Okay, now let's talk about finances. I know you said what you are you are not for profit. How does it work, though? I know you ask for donations uh, in in terms of monies and how does the how does Caring Bridge function? How much monies do they need to go on, or how does that work? You know, I knew back in 1997, um, in fact, 1997, the number one way of getting revenue is the same as it is today, and that's uh, selling ads, selling data, manipulating content, and uh, it's much more sophisticated <laughs> 20 years later. But I knew I didn't want to be driven by that revenue stream because um, the families needed to be in the middle of every decision we made. So very early on, um, and telling you that grandmother story, and then I got a $100 check, and it was just another kind of driving factor. In fact, I call it the frying pan overhead inspiration of this, maybe this could and should be a nonprofit that's driven by charitable giving. So nearly 90% of our funding comes from the people who have experienced the power of CaringBridge firsthand and choose to use their charitable dollars to support CaringBridge for their experience and for 
people in the future that need Caring Bridge. So our budget is um, right around eight million a year. We have a worldwide presence, and you know half of our budget is around just providing that technology solution 24/7 around the world. You mentioned the more than 200 countries and territories that use Caring Bridge were used throughout the U.S. Um, and every seven minutes, a new Caring Bridge site is created, and every single day, more than 400,000 people connect on Caring Bridge. So we have a small uh, staff, just under 40 people. Over half are technology people that, that wake up every day wanting to make that experience the best it can be for a family that's going through a health crisis. It's phenomenal. I guess I used that word before, but it is. It's just just such a great service. Uh, I was thinking about you're talking about. I mean, and I mentioned in the beginning of the show. Yes, it's used around the world. So people spend. You know, we are a global economy. We travel a lot. Families live in different countries. They, uh, you know, for jobs uh, overseas for longer periods of time. So I would imagine a lot of those people could access this when something happens to them, and they really are in a situation not in the United States where there really isn't any support or very, very little support. This, this, this would be a, a, an ideal um, support system for them. Yeah, even the very first Caring Bridge site, that's another story I love to tell. So 1997, uh, you know, the, the family that had the very premature t- uh, baby, Joanne and Darren, very good friends of mine, they had family all over. Um, Joanne has family in Switzerland. Darren has a brother in Alaska. So that was an element in the very first website. And a story I love to tell is Joanne had an Uncle Joe over in Switzerland, and they would go on the Caring Bridge site and find out what's going on. And uh, Uncle Joe, a little older, kind of crustier guy, said, finally a good use for a computer. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great story. That's an excellent story. Actually, we only have a minute left, so that's really a good story to end on because I want to just get some uh, sort of information from you in terms of in terms of website, where to go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So caringbridge.org, anyone can go there. And, you know, it's great to have this opportunity to let people know if they know anyone going through a health journey, tell them about Caring Bridge. Most people work on personal recommendations of coming to Caring Bridge. We do work with healthcare and, and want that to be almost prescribed, but it is that friend of friend saying you should set up a Caring Bridge site. So let others know about Caring Bridge. And as a nonprofit, we thrive on charitable giving. And right now, of course, we're in our end of year uh, annual appeal. CaringBridge.org, there's a donate button. Caring Bridge is thrives on the, the charitable giving of others who have experienced Caring Bridge or who realize the importance of people being connected. So you can go to caringbridge.org and donate. Go to caringbridge.org, create your site, help someone going through a health journey. Great. It was wonderful having you on the show today. Sonia Maring, founder of Caring Bridge. Uh, we're going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. Uh, don't go away. We'll be back in a few minutes. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. 
Tune in to Getting In, a college coach conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Uh, Joining me this morning is Nora. Aura, I knew I was going to say Nora, Aura Nadris, author of Says Who? How One Simple Question Can Change the Way You Think Forever. Uh, Work-related stress is reaching epidemic rates. And according to the American Institute of Stress, negative thoughts uh, about work hijack our creativity, our productivity, make it even harder to get the job done. Mindfulness, meditation, and certified life coach, Laura Nadrich points out there's a powerful method to get centered in the here and now. With a set of daily straightforward questions, we can stop those job worries, the instance they pop up to sabotage us. And it's as simple as uh, practice as brushing your teeth, says she, and it frees us to get back to work. Uh, Aura is a Huffington Post blogger, speaker, writer, and a wedding officiant in L.A. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Hi, Captain. Thank you for having me. All right, we're going to be talking about says who, how one simple question can change the way you think forever. So what's our problem? I guess overall we have all of these, most of us or even all of us, I should say, have negative thoughts which sort of permeate our our lives and control our behavior. And yet they are thoughts that don't necessarily have to be there, and there are ways to overcome this so we can be more productive and more creative. Uh, let's talk about that. What, how do, yeah. <laughs> yes, all that you said is absolutely correct. I mean, we think approximately forty to 70,000 thoughts a day. That's a pretty staggering amount of mental activity going in and out of our minds, and negative thoughts are going to come up. It's inevitable. Do you know, you can't stuff them down, or I would, I would encourage you not to. You know, don't push them aside, but look at them, be with them, and then learn how to manage them and how to navigate them. And ultimately, with the Says Who Method, is transforming them to positive thoughts that work favorably for you and can serve your well-being in all the areas of your life. But when we talk about negative thoughts, because as, as, as you're discussing it, it the negative thoughts are us. That is who we are. They're not something that's out there necessarily. They're no. in our, right? They're our brain. Yes, it's, yes. Uh, how and we're I, processing stuff, yeah. Yes, and I so like that you have brought that up because what I say is there's like a little person that crawls inside our head 
and rearranges our thoughts like furniture, we are thinking them up. That's sometimes the big disconnect is that people don't realize that, hey, you know what, I'm thinking this thought, I'm allowing it to stick around, and I'm at the effect of it as opposed to I'm thinking this thought and I can change it. So it's something that you can change. You have the ability to do so. And, you know, it, it, it really kind of puts it into perspective that you can change your thoughts. Well, there's a basis for that, obviously. And, and, you know, having read your book, and I want you to tell your story about how you actually got into your personal story, how you got into this yourself. I know you ended up in therapy, Jungian psychology, which I think is really important to mention because that's the basis of all of this. Uh, Maybe we should start with your story. Why, you know, obviously you had a lot of negative thoughts, things that were permeating. Permeating. I got it. <laughs> got it. Permeating. It's early in the morning. Permeating your life that were preventing you from doing what you needed to do, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's let's start out true. with your story. Yeah. Well, you're right, Kevin. It was, it is my personal story. And for those that haven't read the book, and hopefully you will, and it's in the introduction, my story was quite a powerful one. I was not quite 15 years old, and my sister, who I admired and loved beyond words, had a devastating nervous breakdown, and it was shocking. And I, the youngest of four, went into complete fear, fight or flight, when that happened. And when we go into fight or flight, we really feel that our survival is tremendously being threatened and that's what happened to me is that I went into that fear state and we tell ourselves all sorts of things when we go into fear you know it's the oh my god I'm not going to be I'm not going to I'm not going to make this I'm not going to handle this I'm not going to be okay I'm going to die and for me the one thought that took really hold in my mind at that time was oh my god this is going to happen to me because you know what happened to her was just so shocking. You know, here's somebody that I loved and was seemingly so normal one day and then had a nervous breakdown at one point, and it just didn't make sense to me. So as I said, that thought took hold in my mind, and um, I basically pushed it down, and that's what I talk about a lot in Says Who is how we can push these experiences, these memories that we've um, had these traumas, we can push them down into what I call, uh, you know, which is the subconscious, but I I describe it as like the, the basement, you know, like the storage room of all the things that have happened to us that we haven't really addressed you know, and and able to kind of, you know, heal, if you will. And that's what happened to me. I pushed that thought down, and what I started to experience was what I call the side effect of a thought that goes unattended. And so I started to experience anxiety, and I didn't know why. And that anxiety was really present with me, I would say, all the time to varying degrees. And so it was, you know... At one point in my life, because I was so uncomfortable, I knew I needed help. And that's when I went into, you know, um, Jungian analysis, and I also studied many psychospiritual modalities to help me, you know, understand what was going on. And, and, and I'm so grateful for that because I knew I needed the help. And that's uh, what well, I, wanted- I want to put that in a context of actually your story, your actual story. I think one thing I just want to mention because. 
these negative thoughts didn't come, you know, very often we think we have these negative thoughts because, and often this may be the case, we have a terrible family situation or marital situation. And in your case, that wasn't true. I mean, as you describe in the in your introduction, yeah. you grew up in this happy household and everybody, you know, a loving family and all of those yeah. kinds of things. So it's kind of like, hey, does maybe it doesn't fit the picture. And then all of a sudden your sister gets sick. And then the second part, which I think you're getting into, I just want to... Uh, put it in a context that you were becoming successful at what or you were uh, an actress doing well and then when you mm-hmm. sort of got to the sec- I don't know which level we'd call it all of a sudden this stuff began to surface and prevented you from actually going ahead in your career yeah so, exactly yeah. right that is exactly what happened to me and you know you said isn't true or right and that's a very important point to make because when we tell ourselves something that isn't really based in fact, you know, nobody told me, there wasn't uh, scientific empirical proof that I was going to go crazy like my sister, or even medical, you know, proof for that matter. That was a thought that was solely born out of fear. And that's a thought that I told myself. So you can imagine, you know, I've worked with many, many people who have revealed to me thoughts or a particular thought, like what happened to me, that has been with them since childhood, that has never been made right, and that they believe is true and has affected as what had happened to me. But I, again, I feel so grateful that I sought out help, that, that it affects your life. It affects the quality of your life. One thought can have such an overpowering hold on you that it can affect the quality of your life, be it your relationships, your work, just everything really. And that's what I want to emphasize, that you can, you can really get to the bottom of it. And that's when the you know, processing of it begins. And that's when the healing begins. And that's when you can transform it. And you can then have a whole different belief system about yourself so that it can support your well-being. Uh, first, I think uh, inherent in what you're saying is you have to be aware. You have to really be aware that these these thoughts are sort of taking con- you're allowing them to take control over uh, what you say and what you do. Um, getting back to the the therapy that you had based on Jungian psychology, uh, separation and individuation those are key. Yeah. Talk to us about that. I mean, it, it, you have to do that in order to go ahead with what what you're talking about. You know, I'm, my, my whole thing really is to know ourselves. You know, I know that can be a lot of, that can be very frightening to a lot of people to really go in there and find out who we are, what we're about. And, you know, when you do that, when you really do the deep dive into your pain, your suffering, your sadness, whatever it may be, for me, it was, you know, again, a thought that was related to something that I was then experiencing was anxiety, and that's what took me into Jungian analysis. But what you find out about yourself by going into those places of yourself is you discover yourself. You discover who you are, which, you know, Jung called the individuation process, which is really finding out who you are separate from other or separate from anything or anyone that has had a hold on you somehow, and that each and every one of us is an individual. We don't come into the world problematic. You know, I didn't come into the world with anxiety. That was a trauma that happened to me. So by going into Jungian analysis, I really could find out all the aspects of who I am. And through that process, I was able to 
connect to what I called my boogeyman thought, which was that I was going to have a breakdown like my sister. And I wouldn't have found that out had I not done an inquiry, had I not examined what was causing me suffering. So, again, yes, the Jungian analysis aspect of that is so incredibly helpful, at least it was for me, because that actually helped me find out who I am and to be able to separate out what is real and what is not. It's really scary to get into therapy. Now, as a social worker, I've been in therapy, (laughs) and nobody should be practicing therapy or counseling, I don't think, unless they've done it themselves. But actually, as you say, examining yourself and being able, we kind of do want to push those thoughts down because, well, maybe I'm uncomfortable, maybe I'm anxious, but I can handle it. Uh, Well, let's say... uh, 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 with a partner, with a family, with or in a work situation, it becomes sometimes more scary to think about kind of uncovering where all this stuff comes from. So it does. Yeah, it's certainly true. And I understand. And which why I wrote the book. I mean, I understand that not everybody can go to therapy, wants to go to therapy, has the means to go to therapy. And for me, that was a long road. And do you know, I feel that there's so many things today. One of them being the says who method. And by the way, it's not a quick fix. It's, I'm not suggesting to put a Band-Aid and bypass therapy. I'm just saying that there are things we can do to help ourselves to understand ourselves better. And what I'm proposing is says who helps you understand your thoughts better so that you can work with them and it's doable. So, you know, going back to what you're saying, yes, I know that it can be difficult. I know that it can be scary. But, you know, for anybody out there who's listening, you know, anytime we have felt afraid to do something and when we cross that, you know, fear, we we cross the bridge to get to the other side of it, we know how that felt. It felt exhilarating. You know, we overcame our fear. You know, there's so much fear. There's so many situations that we find ourselves in you know, where we can even become paralyzed by that fear. And, you know, taking these incremental steps towards going, you know, towards our fear helps us understand sometimes that our fear is way larger than, you know, what it really is about, you know. It, we don't have to be as afraid. It's sometimes in the imagination that we're way more afraid of the very thing that, you know, it really isn't that frightening. And then once we experience it, you know, how many times can we say, oh, that wasn't really so bad? I thought it was going to be a lot worse. That's a great example. I think that's very true. It, kind of, it does. It frees us. It free, and, and once we take that step or risk or whatever we, however we define it, uh, yeah, all of a sudden, all the time, actually, there's this this kind of like feel good, you, you did the right thing, you feel good, um, you feel kind of free, I guess would be one thing. But okay, so but says who? You're saying how one simple question can change the way you think forever. Says who? What, what is, that's all we have to, fo- let's focus on that. <laughs> <It sounds laughs> uh, let's so get easy, right down to it. Just one question and everything's well, yeah. good. Yeah, right. Says who is the first question, obviously the title of my book, and says who is really, who is saying this thought in my mind? You know, who is saying I'm not good enough, I'm lousy at this, I'm terrible at that, I'm not lovable, I'm unattractive, I'm unworthy. I mean, look, we all know that negative self-talk. It's pretty, it can be pretty intense. And it can be really sabotaging and demeaning and even hateful. You know, so everybody's got that inner critic to varying degrees, and that's what I want to focus on. It's like we tell ourselves all sorts of things that really don't 
let us get on with our lives. And that's, again, what I'm talking about. It turns into a fear. And that's when it paralyzes us to really be proactive and even, like, go after our goals and our desires. Do you know, you can have a goal and a desire to do something like lose weight. But if you don't tell yourself thoughts that support you but instead demean you, it's not going to help you reach your goal. I call, I talk about that in the book. It's like holding two conflicting um, ideas at the same time or sentences or thoughts. I really want to lose weight, but I'm so lousy at dieting, it's never going to happen. You can see how that undermines the very thing you want to set out to do. So we don't really sometimes understand how incredibly, you know, these negative thoughts are, are so detrimental to us getting on with our lives. They don't support us whatsoever. So by starting with says who, you're taking ownership. You're like, I am saying that thought. Yep, yeah, I am. I'm telling myself that I'm worthless. Uh-huh, I said it out loud or say it silently, silently to yourself. You don't have to say it out loud to the universe. But you're saying it like, okay, you know what? This is what I'm telling myself. So you're taking ownership over that, which is really important because that's the first step towards changing it. If you don't own it, if you don't recognize it, then you're denying it or you're going to be at the effect of it. So I really commend anybody who can, you know, really want to do the method and say, yes, says who, I am saying this thought in my mind, and I'm ready to change it. And then what's our next stop once we do acknowledge it, once we say, yeah, says who, I'm the one who says it, I'm the right. one who's, so yeah. big, big step. I mean, as you said earlier, there are a lot of people that don't want to get, go into that, you know, uncomfortable zone. They don't want to be that honest. You know, honesty is the name of the game. And guess what? When, you know, this garden variety of negative thoughts that people tell our, you know, tell themselves, everybody at one point or another has told themselves something similar. So, you know, the ownership is extremely important. It is a step towards change. And the second question, if you want me to go through the questions, there are seven of them. The second one is, have I heard someone say this thought before? Really important because... So many thoughts that we carry around in our adulthood, we have started that, you know, we believe that thought going back to childhood. And a lot of the times that thought didn't even originate with us. It was something that somebody said to us. A parent, an authority figure, the bully on the schoolyard, your first boss, you know, your first boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, whoever, somebody along the way told you something about yourself that you weren't okay, and you went, oh, okay, I guess I'm not. I think that's such an important, well, I think, and you believed it, I think that's uh, an important point, at least it's something that's always come up, and I know I have three kids grown, but I used, if they would say something or feel bad about something or say something that somebody said about them, I used my little mantra or whatever it was, uh, just because someone says it doesn't make it so, just because so-and-so said it doesn't make it so, and it sort of fits into what you're saying, right? But that feeling, yeah. as you see, the thoughts are created to feelings, and when we have that first thing said to us, we know what that feels like. It feels like, the, you know, we've, we've been like, you know, the wind has been knocked out of us. The first time someone tells you something, it's so hurtful. And that's when you don't correct it. That's, you know, what you've got to do is maybe feel the sting, feel the burn, feel the wind knocked out of you, and then pick yourself back up again and go, uh, I don't think so. 
Or uh, I have no. to ask you, does it make a difference? And I think it does make a difference that uh, if someone continually says it, let's say you grow up in a family where your mother or your father or your siblings say, you know, you're fat, you're fat, you're, and you hear, that's all you hear as you're growing up, uh, which has a different impact that maybe, let's say, you're at work and somebody says something negative about you, uh, and it's more recent, does it have, maybe doesn't have the same impact as, as something that, in your family of origin. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, but, but it's an interesting connection because, look, everybody has their insecurities. You know, we all have that critical voice. And, again, what Says Who really is about is how to work with it, how to work with those thoughts so that they don't demean you, so that they help you, you know, that you can change those thoughts so that you can change them into something positive and that they can work favorably for you. So if you grew up, and let's just say that was being said to you a lot, you're fat, you're fat, you're stupid, you're clumsy, you know, you're bad at this, you're not good enough for that, you know, people remember that. I work with clients, and it goes way back into childhood where they remember the first time something was said to them. And that's not to say that you're not going to feel that feeling state again in your adulthood, but what you want to do is to start to challenge that thought and and to support it with a positive thought. You know, I've been told I was fat my whole life, and you know what? I may be not at my optimum weight. I may be whatever I am, but I'm lovable and I'm worthy in whatever package I'm in. Do you know? And I don't need to keep tearing myself apart. I'm good enough. Do you know? That's the self-talk you want to start to cultivate. You want to support yourself no matter what you look like or what size you are. That's self-love. Do you know? And, you know, I don't want people to beat themselves up just because they're not the weight, the ideal weight. You have to start with self-love, acceptance. You know, mindfulness is being in the present moment with total awareness and hopefully with love and self-acceptance. Do you know? If you can add that into the mix, that's great. Because then you start on this path of acceptance and you start on this path of loving yourself. And that's we know is really important. It is. It's like you get to a point in life where you just want to stop beating yourself up so badly. You know, how much longer do you want to do that? Right. And where is it going to get you, <laughs> if you think about it? Um, so you're you're reframing these reframing these thoughts and uh, what we would call those positive affirmations. Is that one of our goals? Yeah, they are positive affirmations, and you know, there's logic to these questions too. And once you connect the dots very cognitive. It's like you want to connect the thought you have to what it is really attached to. And, you know, the third question is, do I like this thought, which is one of my favorites? Because, you know, you tell yourself all sorts of negative things. And if you ask yourself just that question, you know, what's great about the says who method is it stops you in your tracks. It stops that negative thought right in its tracks and exposes it for what it really is. So asking yourself even a question like, do I like this thought? You know, I worked with a client who was really on what I call the hamster wheel. She was on a negative jag, you know, and I said to her, can I ask you something? And she said, okay. I said, do you like that thought? It was so negative, you know, so, so sabotaging. And she, heard, you know, she looked at me and she went, no, I don't like that thought. As a matter of fact, I hate that thought. So I said, okay, I just want you to be with that. So you're allowing for a thought to occupy your mind over and over again that you not only don't like, you hate so why would you think a thought that you don't like? 
You can, you can, I have something in the book called Release and Replace. You can release that thought. And if you want to even say that to yourself, I'm releasing this thought. And I'm going to replace it with a thought that I do like. That now, do we need to know, better. do we need to know, this is more, I guess, Freudian psychology or okay. uh, more psychoanalytic? I don't know. But do we, is it necessary to know why we have that thought? in order to release it or not necessary? I, mean, I don't believe that you... Well, the first question... I mean, the second question helps you with that because if you want to know where it came from or the why, you know, you can connect the have I heard someone say this thought before with the person that you remember telling you. And you can say, you know what? I've really identified that and that's a thought. I've worked with clients where it's been a powerful breakthrough for them because they recognize that a thought that they've been telling themselves for so long was they, they could finally connect it to, to, back to a, when a parent said it to them. I mean, I, I, I tell the story in my book. I have a story of a client which was also really a, a, you know, kind of a pivotal moment for me as a life coach, which gave me the idea for Says Who, is I worked with a client who came to me and she was starting a new business and, you know, very creative woman. And literally in the beginning of our session together, she, she says to me, you know, Aura, I have this thought. It's really, it really scares me. And it comes up, you know, at times where I just don't know what to do. And she said, I'm afraid I'm going to be homeless and penniless. And I was like, wow. You, if you looked at this woman and you, you kind of heard her history, she's a very creative person who had other, you know, other creative businesses. It seemed so incongruous. It was such an odd thought, really. And I thought to myself, huh, that's interesting. I, I know that one. She's got a boogeyman thought. But where did that come from? So to, ask your, you know, to answer your question, where does it come from? I took a risk with her. And what came up for me in that moment was, says who? That's really how says who the questioning process was born. I took a risk and I said to her, says who? Well, her eyes widened like saucer. She looked at me like, like I was speaking another language. And I said, who is telling you you're going to be homeless and penniless? And then I took it one step further and I said, have you heard someone say that thought before? That was it. That really was the, the, the game changer. She started to cry, and she got really emotional, and she said, oh, my God, I, I've, never even, I've never looked at this in this way before or ever asked myself those questions. And she admitted to me that it was her father's thought. He, money was scarce at different times when she was growing up, and her, that was her father's biggest fear, that they were going to end up on the streets, the whole family. And he used to say that with a very scary voice, and it used to frighten the daylights out of her. So you see how something that we don't address, something that we carry around that isn't even ours, that could be someone else's that we take on as our own, how it permeates our own life. And what I put together in the session with her is that she was about to start a new business, and that thought was trying to sabotage her. That's a great great story and uh, there are more stories in your book i we we have 30 seconds left i could go wow. on yeah so i know this went <laughs> by very quickly but so i do want to mention the book again though says who you can buy it at amazon bookstores everywhere says who how one simple question can change the way you think forever or a nadrich thanks so much for being on the show today and just website we can go to before we Good off. Thank you, first of all, for having me. I really enjoyed it. Auranadrich.com uh, and all my social media handles are my name, Auranadrich. Great. Thanks so much. Thank I learned you a again. lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're, okay. Yeah. 
We have to say goodbye. I am Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on Voice America. Have a great, great week, and uh, we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 